Today we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah, so if you have a Bible, you can find Jonah. Jonah is right before Matthew, thereabouts. If you can find Matthew, start working your way the other direction, to the left, you'll find Jonah. And Jonah is one of those books that everyone knows, and no one knows. It's not an easy book. Um, It's not all about the fish. It's not all about Jonah. Ultimately, it's all about God, but even even saying that's kind of simplistic, um, it's a challenging book. It's a great book that tells us a lot about even God's mercy and about God's plan of salvation. Um, looks forward to Christ. Looks forward to the Great Commission. It reminds us that the Great Commission ultimately is not um, founded in the New Testament. Uh, it's ultimately planned way back even uh, in seed form, if you will, in the, in the Old Testament. So uh, it's a book that Jesus liked. Uh, he references Jonah on multiple occasions. So it's relevant to us as even an Old Testament book, though we don't live in the Old Testament world. What I'd like to do this morning is look at Jonah 1 and look at a number of ironies. It's a super ironic book. So what we're going to do this morning is look at some of the ironies in Jonah chapter 1. Irony can be defined in different ways, but one way it can be defined is uh, things that are contrary to what you'd expect. Contrary, different than what you'd expect. That's what an irony is. And there are all kinds of ironies in Jonah. So we're going to look at, I have a list of eight. There are more. We could go more. We could go less. But just so you know kind of where we're headed, eight significant ironies, contrary to what you'd expect things in Jonah chapter 1. What's interesting, most of them have to do with sin. And some of them have to do with salvation. So that's kind of where we're headed. It's not super complicated, but it is important. And it is ironic, and it tells us, again, something significant about God in not only His righteousness, but in His mercy. I jokingly say sometimes that today people think God's only attribute is love. It's kind of how we, how we roll. Um, in Jonah chapter 1, it seems more along the lines that Jonah thinks God's only attribute is righteousness as it would pertain to his enemies. And that is equally wrong when it comes to perspectives. Ready? Seats forward, tray tables up. Okay, let's go. First irony, number one, a prophet refuses to obey. A prophet refuses to obey. First three verses, this is review from last time, but how dumb is that? How ironic is that? How counterintuitive is that? A prophet of God speaks for God, knows God, hears God. Other people might say they hear from God. Prophets really hear from God. Of all people, they should do what God says. It's so counterintuitive that a prophet refuses to obey. First three verses, again, we looked at them last week, so we'll do them super fast. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose. Here's the irony, the counterintuitive thing, what you don't expect. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. 
So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. It's dumb. It's ironic. It's crazy. It's not what you'd expect. He's supposed to go to what is now Iran, and instead he goes to, we have to guess, somewhere in Spain. It's just counterintuitive. It's nonsense. Going away from the presence of God. Usually commentators, oftentimes commentators say, and he doesn't realize you can't get away from the presence of God, so we quickly go to Psalm 139, and in Psalm 139 we learn God is everywhere. That's true, right? Jonah thinks he can get away from God, but he can't get away from God. Even when he he jumps into the ocean, he can't get away from God because God is there too. And that's true and right. It may be more along the lines of he wants to get away. This isn't contrary to that, but it's just looking at it from a little different angle. It's not either or. He's getting away from Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. That's where God uniquely dwells. And he's going to get away from there. That's the last place in the world a prophet of God would want to get away from because that's where you want to be. Promised land. It's the great and awesome place. Unique presence of God at the time. And he's on the run to get away from God. So don't don't forget that when you quickly go to Psalm 139. He's going to get away from Jerusalem. And he thinks he can get away from God too. And he can't so... Both are true. But keep that in mind. Now, why does he want to run away from God? Let's save that question. Let's just move on to the next one. Next irony. Number two, second ironic thing about Jonah 1. God's fury toward his own prophet. God's fury toward his own prophet. That doesn't make sense either. That's ironic as well. You don't expect that to happen. But it happens in verse 4. But the Lord hurled. Literally, he threw. It's often associated with, with fury. Sometimes with unbelievers, it's wrath. This is an act of, of judgment. For the Lord hurled. He threw a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. Perfect storm, and it's against a prophet. That, again, is not what we would have expected. We would expect blessing. We would expect judgment and wrath, or wrathfulness, if you will, to come against the unbelievers, maybe the guys on the ship, but not against the the prophet. It's this terrible storm that happens. Verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, which should obviously, I'm just telling you what's obvious, but that should really get our attention, right? It's one thing for the passengers to be afraid. It's a total different thing for the mariners, the sailors to be afraid. They're the ones who have nerves of steel. They've seen it all, been there, done that. So it's an extraordinary kind of storm. I love water. I've been in a boat so many hours in my life that I've been in storms on boats, but usually it's been on a lake. And it's still scary enough to get your adrenaline up, right? But here we are on the Mediterranean Sea. It's massive. It's huge. I was, in one, I was in one storm. Actually, we were going to Catalina Island. Remember the storm? Everybody on the boat was throwing up. Like 300 people throwing up. It was like they had a vomitorium. A vom- <laughs> Literally, you held it. You didn't go to the bathroom. Because the bathroom smelled so putrid. Because nine, 90% of the people were ralphing, tossing their cookies. Whatever you, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it was disgusting. And the... And, and the boat is just heaving up and heaving down. And then you saw the employees, you know, whether they're captain, whatever, they, all the different people, the people that 
are, are, are seafaring people. You know, they're just like smoking another cigarette, you know. It's just like, this is just what you do. It's no big deal at all. Because they're used to it. Because the, the seas are stormy and they're not calm. I say all that to say what's obvious here. When the sailors are in a panic, it's a big deal. Something extraordinary. Something not just an act of nature. This is supernatural, extraordinary. And each cried out to his God, it says in verse, uh, in, in verse 5. Then it says in verse 5, And they hurled, as God hurled the wind in verse 4, they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. You wouldn't expect that, but it's so bad that they're even going to get rid of possessions, wealth, whatever it takes. We're in survival mode. We've got to do this. This is a big, huge deal. So we would expect fury of God against pagans, but we wouldn't expect fury of God against a prophet. That's the irony. Number three, inaction when action is called for. Inaction when action is called for. Verse five goes on to say, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't play one on television. It was all I could do to get a passing grade in three semesters of Hebrew. But Hebrew scholars do tell us. And I learned enough in school to learn which ones to read. They do tell us that it could be translated. Perhaps it would be best translated in such a way that would indicate to us that Jonah does this not before the storm, and he happened to be sleeping, and he's a hard sleeper and didn't wake up, but in the midst of the raging storm. So all heaven is breaking loose. Wink, wink. And Jonah says, "Ah, I'm going to go sleep. It's ironic. It's not what you expect. This is the time when you do something. All the pagans are calling out to all their gods. And and here's the guy who knows Yahweh. And you would expect him to do something. And it would be to call out to his God. And he doesn't do that. And it's counterintuitive. Now, why does he do this? I think we would probably waste our time to try to psychoanalyze Jonah. People talk about it, but I don't know, you know. Something his mother did to him. I mean, it's like <laughs> people waste a lot of ink on weird things. It's like, let's, let's put Jonah on the couch and try to figure this one out. Um, we're going to talk about why, but it is interesting that he just goes to sleep. Jonah's the problem. Okay, let's borrow a psychological term. He's in denial. Probably not the best way to put it. A fourth irony. Unbelievers rebuking believers for prayerlessness. Unbelievers rebuking believers for prayerlessness. Verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
reminiscent of Acts 17, right? Cover your bases. Remember in Paul, Paul in Acts 17 in Athens? And he talked about the altar that was there to, to the unknown God. So what do you do? You make sure you have a God for the water, a God for the sky, a God for the sun, a God for the moon, a God for reproduction, a God for the crops, and a God for all these different things. And just in case we miss one, we have an extra altar because we don't want to offend any of them. Jonah, why, why aren't you participating in this prayer service, right? Why, why aren't you involved? You, you should be beckoning, calling whoever your God is. You, you should do this. This is not time to, to, to do what you're doing, which is nothing. You should be joining us. This, this, is, this is huge. Are you some kind of atheist? Isn't, isn't that ironic? So not only is it ironic that you've got the rebuke, but, but Jonah isn't an atheist. Jonah's the one who knows Yahweh, the one true living God who made heaven and earth, as we will see. I mean, of all people, he could, he could help. Now, I want to come back to that question before we move on. Why is Jonah on the run? Why is Jonah doing this? What's happening? I want to answer it in two ways. Borrowing from last week, Jonah's on the run because for him to go to Nineveh would be for him to go and show an act of generosity, right? toward the Assyrians. Mortal enemies with Israel. Things are at a lull right now in history, but it's been terrible in the past. As I mentioned last week, they're, they're a superpower. And they're going to be a problem in the future. And so Jonah wants nothing to do with potentially helping because if you preach God's coming wrath, there may be repentance. And he has such a hatred and disdain for the Assyrians that he's not going to do it. And really, if you understand that, you understand the book of Jonah for the most part. And you go, oh, that, that, that makes sense. He's an Iran hater. Dating myself a little bit, I remember in the 70s when I was a kid and remembering with uh, the hostages and all that with our country, remember that song, bomb, 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 Iran. Bomb, 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 Iran. Bomb, bomb, Iran. Remember? Poor Uncle Sam's getting pretty hot. Time to turn Iran into a parking lot. Bomb, Iran, bomb, bomb. I'm thinking about having a job at night singing, but it's this useless information supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no satisfaction. See, I just solve everything with a song of all this dumb pop culture stuff in my head. Jonah would have liked that song, right? That's my point. He was an Iran hater to the bone. He wants them to go to hell. 
I used to know a pastor who did ministry in a certain part of the country, populated mainly by people from a certain religion who are not Trinitarian. And he said he knew it was time for him to leave there because he started wanting them to go to hell instead of being burdened for them. Jonah hates Assyrians. And he's willing to die instead of obey God and help. That's how deep-seated the hatred is. Complimenting that, I said a first reason before I lost myself in singing. Complimenting that would be the fact that we know that this is the problem because of chapter 4. Okay? If you look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, maybe we shouldn't go there to help us interpret chapter 1. Um, I'm inclined to think we actually should, so that's kind of what we're doing. In chapter 4, verse 1, I think we have insight into why Jonah is, is the way he is. It says in verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Right? This is looking back to Joppa. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful uh, God, uh, excuse me, are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Why is Jonah the way he is? He hates Assyrians and he has good enough theology to know that God might actually use his preaching to bring about their repentance. So again, that's why I said his problem isn't that God's only attribute is love. His problem is selectively God's only attribute is righteousness. At least that's how he wants it to be. But he actually knows better. And you see here where things get complicated as far as in one sense, I'm going to disagree with what I'm going to say, but in one sense you could, you could see that you could look at this as an admirable motive. You shouldn't, but if you only selectively read your Bible and you only selectively look at things, especially when you really look, look really highly of yourself, and you really feel national pride. I'm an Israelite. The chosen people of God. And we've had a huge bad history with that superpower. And, and, and if I go there, they might repent. Instead of God wiping them out, because that would be better, because then Israel will be safe. And Israel is good, and, and, and it's the best place. It's where the presence of God dwells. I mean, you can see where some good theology, but not fully informed theology, can lead to a bad place. Instead of the whole, instead of taking God at His word and just trusting God that it's going to work out. And we do that. Instead of letting God be God and call the shots, trusting Him, 
he's going to try to engineer it so it works maybe in a better way in his view. I mentioned it last week, and I don't want to jump back down and into it, but remember, by design from the very beginning, Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. I mean, the idea of Gentile inclusion didn't come up in Matthew. It came up in Genesis. And we have to remember that. Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. Okay, let's keep going. No new irony yet. Number, uh, verse 7. And they, the sailors, we're back in chapter 1, and they, the sailors, said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. Let it, let's do games of chance. Maybe, maybe the divine will, will work through this. Let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. No surprise to us. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us, on, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Explain. Help us to understand. Next it says, What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Not as in, he made the sea and the dry land, and that's all. He made two things. But as in, more along the lines of, we say, if, if you say, I work morning, noon, and night. You, you don't mean you work three times a day. You mean you work all the time. The, the idea is, the God who made everything. I'm a Hebrew. I come from Jerusalem. I'm an Israelite. And based upon what he's going to say, he tells them more. So I would take it that he answers their question, what's your occupation? I'm a prophet of God. <laughs> I mean, he tells them why all this stuff is happening. It's his fault because he's not obeying God. But it's just amazing. I fear the Lord, which is another way of saying, I'm of the religion of the Lord. I respect him as God. Of the Lord, Yahweh. If you're new to the Bible, I'm not speaking in tongues, okay? Yahweh is this unique, special name for God translated in our translations so many times like it is in the one I'm preaching from. Lord, and it uses those uppercase lower letters. It's like all caps, kind of. I don't know what they call that, but anyway. But that signifies, he's talking about Yahweh, the self-existent God, the, the, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, the unique God of Israel. Not the God of polytheism, the God of, if you will, gods. Overall, the supreme, one and only true God, whether you believe it or not, he's telling them, that's who, who I worship and who I fear and who I belong to, and that's, that, God is the problem. Well, I'm the problem, but you see what he's saying. 
I fear Yahweh. He's the one, Jonah, who worships the God of the temple in Jerusalem. They know exactly what he means because they've just come from Joppa, down the road from Jerusalem. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid. See, now they have a theological explanation for their circumstances. They were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. See, he told them more than what's recorded in verse 9. This is happening because I've done the wrong thing. Here's a case when we know that's the case, right? Don't, don't live your life thinking whenever something bad happens, it's always because you've done something wrong, right? Job should help you understand that that's not a good way to live your life, okay? Bad things happen because we live in a sin-cursed, fallen world. That's just, it's normal. But sometimes bad things happen because it is an act of God, unique and disciplinary, if you will, and this is one of those occasions, and there's no question about that. Verse 11 then says, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It's more raging. It's more wrathful. It's more and more unsettled. And notice what Jonah doesn't say. Jonah doesn't say, Repent, you polytheists. Which you could say. It'd be a great starting place, wouldn't it? Well, now that I have your attention regarding Yahweh, the one true God, all of your prayers are idolatrous that you just offered. And I'm going to clean the deck here for you to kneel down and repent and embrace Yahweh as your God, which you should do. And which Jonah should do. That would be a blessing to the nations. Because you're helping them to understand reconciliation. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, take me to Nineveh. What should we do? Okay, fifth irony. Let's keep rolling. The irony of desiring death rather than the salvation of your enemies. Desiring death rather than the salvation of your enemies. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me as God hurled the wind and as they hurled the cargo. The writers using this language, pick me up and, and huck me, hurl me, throw me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Kill me and your problems will stop. And again, I can't help but say this is a great opportunity to, look, to, to remind ourselves of something that's true in the Old Testament and something that's true in the New Testament because it's true of all of the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. That we are sinful people. And, and it shows up in this kind of irony. 
just to see a glimpse of just how perverse and how wicked and how twisted and how sinful we are. That we, we do dumb stuff like this, like Jonah. You would rather see these people perish and die. Because they don't deserve mercy. They don't deserve grace. They don't deserve an opportunity to repent. That's how my hatred heart functions in other scenarios. (sighs) You know? But I am an Israelite chosen of God. Right? That's That's what he's doing. Reading his Bible selectively, thinking theologically in a selective sort of way, and forgetting from where he's come. Because we're all children of, God, children of wrath, even as the rest, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says. He doesn't deserve God's mercy, but he's been shown it. And if he really got that, he would have a, a, a tool, if you will, so that he might overcome his hatred. And I don't want to make Jonah all about us and take away from it, but I don't want to miss opportunity for application because we hate people too. And we don't forgive people and we want what's bad for people. Sometimes at least. Some of you more than others. Right? We struggle with this. But to the degree that we understand grace, mercy, and the gospel to us, and what's been given to us while we were yet enemies, now I have a groundwork, now I have a foundation, now I have a grid, now I have what's necessary, a lens through which I can see, and a basis from which I can operate, and I can forgive people. In that sense, we're no different. God forgive us, right? Literally. God help us to see. It's just so ironic that this is how believers act. Professing believers. Of all people, we are right, we should get it. And of all people, sometimes we're like the ugliest, worst of all. And we should see Jonah and say, Jonah is pathetic. And Jonah is ugly. And this is terrible. And then say, God, remind me of my grudges. Hmm. Not to mention, God, why don't I have a passion to have people come to know Christ? Maybe those two things are related. Let's move on to the last two, or the last three. Another irony would be unbelievers acting better than believers. Happens all the time, but it is ironic. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard, right? Throw me over and you will live. And what do they do? They row, man, right? He gave them the answer. 
But they don't want to do that. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So they have a conscience. They have morality written on their hearts. This is not a good idea, right? To just throw somebody over. I mean, they're liable to be caught eaten by a fish or something, right? You don't do that. Not to mention the fact that if he's a prophet of God, verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, Yahweh, amazing, have done as it pleased you. I might be wrong, but the the way I'm reading that and others would agree at least, I mean, they're they're, they're feeling this tension, right? They're feeling it fast because they got to get this done, but they're feeling this tension. There's a bit of a conundrum going on here. Here's the answer. Here's the solution. A prophet told us to do it, right, God? Hey, it's not our fault. Prophet told us. <laughs> he said God told him. So anyway, so, so I mean, we, we should do this and it'll stop and it seems like it will be true. And yet if we do this, then we're going to be guilty. And not only are we guilty, it's a prophet and, and, and row hard, but it's not working. And uh, what do we do? They're afraid of justice from God. And yet, it seems like it's the only solution. And they, they think they're comfortable with this being God's sovereign will, right? Oh, Lord, have done as it pleased you. Seems like this is what you want. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him. There's the throwing word again. Into the sea. Now, with a little smiley face, I wrote in my margin. Then... With one, with one eye open, right? I mean, can you imagine? You're going to throw the prophet in the ocean for death? Then with one eye open, because is God going to just destroy us for doing that? That was a really bad idea on one level, right? And the sea ceased from its raging. Whew. Seventh irony. The repentance of Gentiles through Jonah. The repentance of Gentiles through Jonah. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Now they're even more afraid. They feared the Lord, but remember that's how Jonah described himself as a fearer of the Lord. I belong to Yahweh. I belong to the one true God. And now, they, now they're, descri- they're described the same way. So I drew a line between verse 16 and verse 9. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Vows associated in the Old Testament with religious devotion and praise. Now, did they become believers? I Truly, I mean, I don't know for sure. But the description and the words that are used here are the kinds of descriptive words that are used for believers. So I'm going to take it that they did. Did they have a momentary lapse from their polytheism? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, but regardless, they do the right thing and acknowledge God the right way as believers would, right? And isn't it interesting, isn't it ironic that Jonah didn't want that and yet his actions are used by God to produce that? I'm not entirely right in saying that either, by the way. His hatred is specifically aimed 
not toward Gentiles in general, right? I still think the point is valid. But his supreme hatred was aimed toward the Assyrians, not just Gentiles. But it's still, still ironic. It's still worth noticing. Okay, let's do... That was number seven, right? Yes, let's do number eight. Deliverance through death. We have another irony. Deliverance through death. And we have verse 17. And there's a whole debate about whether 17 should be part of chapter 2. It should be part of chapter 1. In the Hebrew Bible, I believe it's part of chapter 2. And yet we have added the chapter divisions, even if you're looking at the Hebrew Bible. And it's all meant to be part of one flowing section. So tell you what, here's what we'll do. We'll look at it today and we'll look at it next week. It's kind of how we're going to deal with that. But what we will do is see deliverance through death is ironic. Verse 17, we're going to end here. And the Lord appointed, ah, sovereignty of God, a major theme in this book. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Maybe as an aside, let me begin by saying, could this happen? It's kind of a trick question, right? Well, no, it can't happen unless you're God, right? Because you don't appoint a fish to go swallow somebody for three days. Only God could do this. This cannot happen. And I'm making the point because sometimes we, we try to defend the Bible and try to you know, spend lots of ink and pages and trees to prove that this could somehow happen naturally. This can't happen. It can't happen. If you're a human being, you cannot appoint a fish to swallow someone for three days. It can't be done. I can't even catch a fish with bait. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I'm just making this point that this is supernatural. This is extraordinary. God does this. It can certainly happen. It did happen. Okay, now we're going to get around to that. Jesus believed it happened, so I think as a Christian, I should believe it happened. Matthew chapter 12, verse 44, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Historical reality, but can't be explained naturally, because God did this. But Jesus believed it's true, so I believe it's true. It could happen. It did happen. That's the aside. The main point is the irony deliverance through death. Jonah gets hurled into the hurling sea and he gets eaten by a fish. Don't read that knowing the rest of the story. If it was toward the surface, and I'm not going to speculate that it was toward the surface, but, but if you were one of the watchers, if you were one of the bystanders and you saw... Jonah get eaten by a fish, you wouldn't go, awesome, he's safe. You know what I mean? Great deal. If you're Jonah, and maybe it didn't happen toward the surface, you know, you didn't see the fin. Oh, awesome, he's safe. It's like, duh. If you're Jonah and you're going, 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 and here it comes, you know, I think we're going to need a bigger boat, all that kind of stuff. You don't go, oh, wonderful, salvation. 
to get eaten by a fish is bad. Okay? Read Jonah that way. So that you can see the irony. Deliverance through death. Eaten by a fish, death sentence. Deliverance through death. That's irony. God is going to use this to rescue Jonah. So that he'll use Jonah to bring salvation to the nations. And I don't have to work very hard to make a connection to Christ. Because if the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, teaches anything, it teaches deliverance through death. And it's an irony. In Isaiah 53, we looked at it not very long ago, so it's fresh in my head. It pleased the Lord, the Father, to crush him. It pleased the Lord, the Father, to crush his son. That's ironic. That doesn't make sense on the face of it. But it makes sense, big picture, he's sent as the Lamb of God to take away our sins. And through substitutionary wrath absorption, death, we can have our sins atoned for. It's ironic on the face of it, but it's deliverance through death so that we can have life. It's awesome. It's awesome. That's why we tell people to trust in Jesus, a crucified Savior. What sense is that? It makes perfect sense because it's ultimate deliverance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this substitutionary atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ and for all that that means, all that he is and all that he always will be to us. Thank you for what we've been able to learn today, a little bit about history, a little bit about your word, and hopefully something greatly significant about you and your heart even for the nations as you would send your son to be the savior of the world not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles also. And we are grateful and thankful, and we praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.